Hello, and thank you for joining me on Flourishing Better Bible Instruction. I'm your host, David Grills, and I'm a high school Bible teacher. This is episode 11. It's a continuation of the previous episode as we look at the journey from Egypt and slavery to the plains of Moab just east of the Jordan. We will also get a brief look at the conquest of Canaan. Before I pick up where we left off, I want to talk a little bit about how these units are broken up. In the years prior to COVID-19, this is generally how I divided things up. All of the units that have been presented so far and what you'll hear in the near future. Since then, because of working remotely and because of the extra support that students need, I've reorganized everything in two weeks. In other words, this last unit, Unit 4, was presented and delivered as two separate weeks, each week having its own study guide, learning goals, assessments, and so on. So now, just finding out from my school that we're going to be back in semesters, this process has been valuable to me as I try to reorganize it back. I bring this up now because the plains of Moab, as a final destination of this journey, and the conquest of the land involve a little bit of overlap. I could be very rigid about how I handle that by stopping in that part of numbers where, hey, we've arrived at the plains of Moab and cover a few of the events that occur there up to the death of Aaron and then skip chapter 21 and then continue from there, but also remembering to skip chapter 32 where the two and a half tribes request that land. I'm not a big fan of manipulating the narrative that way, so in my classroom I generally just go from beginning to end and then allow the full force of the text in Joshua where Joshua reminds those tribes, Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, of their commitment to Moses and the rest of Israel to go with them and fight for the land west of the Jordan. In this way, you have another overlap between units, which is an opportunity for students to piece things together, for them to say, hey, wait a minute, I remember this from Numbers, and now I see it again here in Joshua. So put another way, I don't want unit titles, planning, handouts, etc. to dominate the text. So let's go back to Mount Sinai and pick up where I left off last time. In order to complete the assignment from the first half of the journey, we have already looked at the book of Leviticus and the Day of Atonement. We've looked at the tabernacle, etc. And now we're ready to pick up camp and begin the journey to the east side of the Jordan. The journey from Sinai, regardless of which site you favor or which site students decide is probably the more likely site, it's not a long journey. But as you know, the overall journey lasts quite a bit longer than is expected. The challenge is that the text isn't super clear about how long Israel was in each location. What it talks about is how whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, Israel followed. We know from the text that sometimes that was a very short time between setting camp, the cloud lifting, and breaking camp and continuing on their journey. Sometimes it was longer. As far as the total length of time, we'll talk about that a little bit later. The structure of the book has the journey divided in three different locations with travel between them. First you have Mount Sinai and then the journey to the wilderness of Paran their time at the wilderness of Paran, and then their journey to the plains of Moab, followed finally by their time in the plains of Moab. 
Like all of the books of the Bible, Numbers has a distinct outline and structure that can be written out or made into a visual. And there are lots of different resources you can use to take a look at that and present it to your students or give them the information and have them create some sort of structure. And I like the Bible Project for this purpose. As we look at each book, I present their overview video for that book. I highlight some things that may not be there or restate things that are. And then we continue with our own reading and study for the rest of the unit. For those books in the Torah, so we're still in numbers, we'll get to Deuteronomy. The Bible Project has a second video in their Torah series that I will often show after we've had our own study as a kind of review and an opportunity for students to speak into what they recall that might have been left out or emphasis that they found particularly meaningful. Again, there's so much in these texts that there's really no way to cover everything and study it thoroughly and thoughtfully. Another advantage of giving this overview is students quickly see that Numbers is more than the two countings of the people that it gets its name from. In fact, Numbers is kind of fun with all of the rich narrative that we find there. The themes of Israel's rebellion and God's provision continue as we leave Sinai. My students are often gobsmacked at just how easily and readily Israel turns away from God as they rebel against Moses. Even Aaron and Miriam rebel against Moses. And by now, students are wondering, why can't they follow God when he's right there? When they can see the pillar, they have the tabernacle, they have Moses with them. What's going on there? Each day, they have a reminder of his provision, but still they are looking for something else. And these are solid questions. This is a great observation from students. They are clearly catching one of the themes of this book, and I hope they see grace in what is happening here as God continues to give chances and opportunity for Israel to turn to him. As we talk about it, they start to think about how we also behave in very similar ways. And the writers also emphasize the difference between the presence of God and the waywardness of the Israelites. It's meant to be a lesson to us. So let's take a look at what actually happens as we trace this journey through Numbers and then Deuteronomy. As mentioned before, the book of Numbers gets its name from the counting, the census that happens both at the beginning and toward the end, chapters 1 and 26 respectively. And there are opportunities for students to use their study Bibles to investigate what a census is, the cultural situation, historical situation, and the value of counting your troops. In our cultural background study Bibles, there are two resources. First, in the notes about this census here, it talks about a head count, the practice elsewhere, who would be considered eligible to be counted among the fighting men, and so on. On the following page, there's an article that talks about the difficulty in interpreting these figures. After considering the numbers, looking at which tribe was largest, and so on, there might be questions, and then we would tackle some of the criticisms and how they can be resolved. We also spend some time looking at the arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle, and we discuss the concept of holiness. We also refer back to what we'd learned about the laws. At this stage, the students have a better understanding of the difference between purity laws and sin. This is good preparation as Israel is given more laws, 
which happens from time to time until the death of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. God has Moses and the twelve tribes prepare for their journey. His presence leaves the tabernacle. They pack up and head out toward Kadesh in the wilderness. It isn't long before the Israelites complain against Moses and against God regarding food and other difficulties that they have. God responds in two ways generally, and this we will see in the future as well. One, he meets their need, so quail is sent in this particular case. But there is also judgment, first a fire, and then later a plague. We don't find a lot of detail or explanation or even resolution, but the pattern is set for the rest of the journey. The very next event is another rebellion, this time it's Aaron and Miriam. Miriam seems to suffer from a disease like leprosy as a result of this rebellion, but nothing happens to Aaron. Some students pick up on the different ways that these two siblings are treated. Aaron seems to get away with things. First it was the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai. Now this rebellion, he is unscathed. And there will be one final difference at the end of their lives. Once they arrive at Kadesh, the twelve spies are sent out who give the mixed report. Ten giving a negative report, and Joshua and Caleb giving a positive report. The people rebel due to the negative report, and so that generation is prevented from entering the promised land. Students know this story well, but now they also know the significance of 40. Previously, while learning about some of the literary aspects of the Bible, they learned that the number 40 is generally connected with some sort of spiritual trial that usually ends in failure. And with this story, we have an opportunity to talk about two different 40s, the first being the 40 days that the 12 spies were traveling throughout the land, and they failed that spiritual trial. The second 40 is the total number of years for the wandering in the wilderness. So now students can recall something they learned at the beginning of the semester and apply it to something that was familiar to them that they felt they really didn't need to know more about. Then we have the rebellion of Korah, who challenges Moses' leadership and Aaron's priesthood. And then the budding of Aaron's staff, which confirms him. And then finally, the last piece at Kadesh is Moses rebelling against God himself, disobeying God by striking the rock twice and calling out to the people saying, you rebels, should we bring water out of the rock so that they and the livestock can drink? As a result, Moses and Aaron will not be able to lead the people into the promised land. And now Israel packs up and begins their journey to the plains of Moab. The themes change a little bit. No longer are the people rebelling per se. They will complain. But now we have more military conflict entering into the story. Edom refuses to allow Israel to pass through their lands under the threat of attack. Aaron and Miriam die. Aaron's death is dramatic. He is taken to the top of Mount Hor and stripped of his garments, which are given to Eleazar. It doesn't say whether he dies of exposure or the timing was just right for him to die on top of the mountain. And the people of Israel mourn for him once they know that he is dead. Miriam dies without any fanfare. We don't know how long Israel camps here, but we know that people around them are getting nervous. Arad, a king from Canaan, attacks. This is the first of three. The second is a few chapters later with Sihon attacking. And then Og attacks after that. Israel again defends itself. 
and conquers the territory belonging to those two kings. When we discuss these battles and the consequences, if my students themselves don't bring up, well, what does it mean they destroyed the cities or, you know, they killed everyone, then I will wait for that discussion until we get to the conquest in the book of Joshua. There is another interesting shift in the story that again shows God's grace. Balak hires Balaam to pronounce curses on Israel as he witnesses them on the border of his territory. Balak is the king of the Moabites and he invites the Midians into this treachery against Israel. Students who have high exposure to the Bible know this story well, like other stories previous to this, and can interject and tell us what happens. Balaam is unable to give a curse but instead blesses Israel. And God here is at work, again showing really what I would call Old Testament grace, giving Israel chances, protecting them, providing for them, even though they are down in the plains and even looking to other gods. This is a good opportunity to talk about well, who are these tribes and where did they come from. Some of my students will remember the origin stories of these peoples from earlier in the course when we were talking about the patriarchs. The Moabites and the Ammonites are descendants of Lot. Edom is another name for Esau, the brother of Jacob. And as mentioned in an earlier podcast, the Midianites are descended from Midian, who is one of the six children of Abraham from his second wife. While we are making our way through the book of Numbers and heading into Deuteronomy, students have by now started their second assignment, which is the playlist assignment. By now, we have seen enough to start thinking about which characters, which events, which ideas do the students want to emphasize. So this is their choice. They pick those things in any combination. They could choose three characters. They could do one of each, two ideas, one event. It's up to them. And this is meant to be a fairly low-key prescribed assignment. It's a bit of a break from what we've been doing up until this point. The thinking part is a little bit more challenging because they have to go and find music that matches the feeling, the connection they have to those characters, ideas, and events. They do a great job with this. For most students, this is an awesome opportunity to connect with something they care about, music. There's one more story, a really interesting event with interesting characters that occurs at the end of Numbers in chapter 27 about the daughters of Zelophehad. And if you don't know this story, that's perfectly reasonable. Most kids have never, ever heard of this story. But what's really interesting about it is it talks about the social dynamics of Israelite society as it is at this point. It also shows a type of law, causal law, that arises out of a situation. You could think of it as the advent of traffic law in response to dangers and safety concerns surrounding automobiles and pedestrian traffic. In this case, the daughters of Zelophehad are, are concerned about their father's inheritance in the promised land. They have no brothers to inherit his land. Their father did not die in the rebellion of Korah, but died because of his own sin, it says. And the daughters argue that just because they are women, it does not mean that their father should not have an inheritance, that somehow they could be married to men from other clans, other families, and still hold on to the land that was promised to their father, Zelophehad. 
They make this appeal at the tabernacle, and Moses consults God, and God says, sure, let's make this change, and it will be a permanent change. Later on in the course, when we talk about Ruth and Naomi, we can reflect back on this and say, well, what is the difficulty? Why does Boaz have to redeem the property of Elimelech, Naomi's husband? Coupled with the conversation about Leverite marriage, which comes up in Genesis with the story of Judah and Tamar, we start to get a picture of the social safety net that was in place at the time. As we move on to Deuteronomy, the Bible Project does most of the work for us. We don't actually read through that book together. Students are busy working on their assignment, so we watch both videos. The first is the overview, and then the final video of the Torah series. We do zoom in a little bit on the offer of life or death, where Moses asks Israel to choose life and blessing or death and destruction. And then we revisit that when we get to Joshua, which is the next book we'll look at. Thematically, Joshua is really about obedience, particularly in the early chapters. So what we notice in the text is a repetition. Before, in our close readings, I really want students to notice repetition. And here I ask them to count, you know, how many times is this said? When we get to the end of the book of Judges, which will happen in the next episode, noticing repetition, even counting repeated words and ideas, reveals the shift from a tribal identity to a national identity. Here in the book of Joshua, the repetition begins with the phrase, be strong and courageous, or a variation of that phrase. Three times God says that to him, and one time the Transjordan tribes say that to Joshua. Also, we have the instructions about how they're going to cross the Jordan, and other instructions given in this general pattern. God tells Joshua. Joshua tells someone else his generals. And then they do it. And each time it's recorded, nearly word for word. We discuss why Joshua would need the encouragement that he's received from God and the Transjordan tribes. And then we continue to look at different ways that God confirms Joshua's leadership parallel to Moses' leadership, whether it's crossing the Red Sea and then crossing the Jordan, the promise made by the Transjordan tribes to Moses and then fulfilled under Joshua. You can even draw parallels between the burning bush and the angel of the Lord's army that Joshua meets on the far side of the Jordan. But before they cross the Jordan, the spies are sent and they meet up with Rahab. We spend a little bit of time looking at the Rahab story, and I want my students to remember Rahab because she's going to come up a little bit later again, long after the conquest. And speaking of conquest, most students have some difficulty with the idea that God would command the entire wiping out of a people. This topic could come up earlier in the course. For example, God calls for the blotting out of the Amalekites at Rephidim. But it's here in the book of Joshua that it really comes to a head. I have the suspicion that some students are waiting to be able to ask the question about whether or not it's moral for God to call for the killing of all of these people. And it's a great question for students to ask. I think it's important that they feel that this doesn't seem right or I don't understand how this is okay. And I do a quick survey in the class and most students are kind of like, yeah, I, I'm not sure how this fits. I understand God is God. 
and he may be justified based on the behavior of the Canaanites, but students still struggle with it. There's a great book called Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and Canaanite Genocide, put out by Zondervan. I want to get my hands on other books from this series, but this is the one that I have, and it has helped me to process and think about different ways to respond to these questions. A fifth response that I present to students and is consistent with other parts of the text, you know, looking back at the numbers in Numbers, for example, are we looking at hyperbole, which was common among cultures around Israel and makes sense in this text? For example, God commands that they destroy these people, but then later on there are commands about how to deal with those people. Well, why does that matter if they're all gone? We discuss it for a bit, but we don't come to a conclusion in the classroom. If it's hyperbole or not, is up to the student to decide. As we continue in Joshua, we look at Jericho. We take a look at some of the historicity of the city of Jericho and its place in the advent of civilization as probably one of the very first cities. And students are surprised that it was fairly small as far as cities go that even the perimeter of the city was not very far. Yet, we talk about obedience and how every day people got ready for battle. The soldiers put on their gear and they marched around the city to do nothing. And asking them, you know, how many times would it be before you stop wearing all of your armor or stop equipping your weapon? Again, going back to the theme of obedience and how important that is, as we see in the next section where we have the sin of Achan who keeps some of the booty from the city of Jericho and brings a loss on to Israel, which tells everyone around them Israel can be beaten. Thinking back to the Rahab story, what she tells the spies is that the whole land melts before them. Everyone is afraid. So this loss is costly, not because many people died, but because it's known now that Israel can be defeated. So in this situation, everyone tears their clothes, they cry out to God. Achan is discovered to have done this thing to disobey God's command. Ultimately, he is stoned, he and his family, all his belongings, his livestock, his tent, and then burned and then buried in stone. And there's a phrase at the end here of that story that has come up before in class, but I don't think I've mentioned it in a podcast. And it's one of the markers that the story has been written after the fact or updated without stepping too much into the dating of when things were written, whether it was under David or in the Second Temple period or in Babylon. It says in the text, it is called the Valley of Achor to this day. So to this day is a reference to, okay, whenever the account was written, the scribe is saying, I'm looking back at these events and this thing happened and it's called that even today. After a quick look at the Gibeonite deception, we have a quick overview of the details of the conquest of Canaan, how it was a partial conquest, and that the tribes would then have to go and individually continue to take possession of their inheritance. We look at the map to see how that promise was meant to be, and then Later on, we can see how the progress happens, looking first at Judges, and then later on the rulership of Saul and David and Solomon. 
And then we look at Joshua's final speech and compare it to Moses. So where Moses offered life and death, here Joshua asked them to choose who they will serve. And here we see that the land is tied to their obedience. Our look at the conquest is generally about a week or four days or so. It's very quick and we are starting to do overviews of these books more than looking at all of the details, just highlighting a few things. I've tagged it on to the end of this podcast because it's a small standalone one week or so study. In the next episode, I'll take you through Unit 6, where we see the case being made for a king. This is in Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>